And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm pleased to welcome Margaret Wrinkle to the program today. Margaret is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. Her writing has also appeared in Guernica, The Oxford American, among others. Margaret is also the founding editor of the literary website for Humanities Tennessee, chapter16.org. She has recently left the site to concentrate on her own writing. And full disclosure, she commissioned and edited my interviews for chapter16.org. Today we'll be talking about her debut book, Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, which is published by Milkweed Editions. Margaret, when did you first start contributing to the New York Times, and how did that opportunity come about? I had actually, when I was a full-time writer, for about 12 years I was a full-time freelancer, and I would occasionally send things to the New York Times, and the answer was always no. So I wasn't really looking to break into that market anymore. I was working as a full-time editor for Chapter 16 in Humanities Tennessee and really not writing anything at all. And then one day at the Southern Festival of Books, I ran into Clay Risen, who is, in addition to being the author of five books, the deputy editor of the op-ed section of the Times. And I was telling him about the various elder care calamities that my husband Haywood and I were contending with. And he looked at me and he said, would you ever want to write about that? And he meant it, I thought, as a kind of recommendation for coping with troubles. I've known Clay a long time. He knew me when I was a full-time writer, and he knew that I wasn't doing really any writing because he also writes for Chapter 16. It turns out, though, that's not really what he was saying. He was saying that the Times had just started a new series called The End about end-of-life issues. And it hadn't started running yet, and they didn't have an inventory. And he thought, if I wanted to write about it, that might be something they could use, the stories I had told him. So... I did. I spent probably a month tinkering with that essay, and I sent it in, and they bought it. It wasn't Clay's series, so he wasn't the editor, but it gave me courage to try again. I don't know, maybe nine months later, I sent another piece in, or maybe it was a year, and they bought it also. And then maybe three or four months after that, I sent another piece in, and they bought it, And I can't remember exactly how many, but four or five essays in, they contacted me and said, would you like to start writing more regularly? And at first it was once a month, and then after six months of that, it became once a week. You said it had been a while since you had written because you had been editing full-time on Chapter16.org. How did it feel to get back into the groove of writing? The writing I had been doing before was closer to journalism than to essays. I had started out as a poet, and then I it's a fairly natural segue to go from writing first-person lyrical poetry to first-person lyrical essays. But it's a pretty big jump to go from that to reported features. And I had been, in the last several years of my writing, my freelance writing career, I had mainly been doing features. So it was almost liberating to go back to hearing my own voice instead of transcribing interviews and um, doing research and figuring out how all those little pieces fit together. 
the way you do with a feature. It was much simpler and quieter and, and really very calming. I had kind of forgotten what it felt like to assign words to something that felt too big for words. It was a way of making sense of a difficult thing. And and it turned out to be really very comforting. That you wrote poetry formerly before you started reporting makes a lot of sense. As you said, these are very lyrical and there is a lot of imagery. And do you think it's more poetry or do you think it's more prose? It's definitely prose. Poetry is a specific literary art form that is written in lines and stanzas. A poet has to pay great attention to where the line breaks fall and where the stanza breaks fall. And it can't just be images. It has to also be music and a really tight structure. So I don't think of it as poetry. I think of it as it's written in sentences. There's nothing any more experimental about it than reading a column in the New York Times in in most ways. There are a few little essays in there where the structure is like there's one, the imperfect family beatitudes that follows the structure of Bible verses. (laughs) But mostly they're just sentences that turn into paragraphs and paragraphs that turn into essays. There is a lot of attention paid to where a smaller piece leaves off. True. And goes into it. I think there is a musicality in your writing and that you are going for certain effects on where you leave off on something. That's true. When I was first writing the essays, they were very specific and distinct from each other. By the time I had probably 50 of them, I was thinking in terms of how they related to each other as well as how they stood alone. So every one of these essays, I hope, can stand alone as a separate piece of writing. But where those breaks are, that was partly a decision about structuring the book itself. Now, how much work did you do on them in order to achieve this effect from their original probably 750, 800 words that you had in the Times? Only about 10 of these pieces appeared in any form in another publication. Most of them I wrote for this book or in the early stages just for myself. So the ones that did appear in the Times, for example, there's an essay in there called Howl, only that I credit as having appeared originally in the Times. But in fact, it's two paragraphs from a much longer essay that appeared in the Times, and those two paragraphs even are substantially different. But I erred on the side of caution to make sure that anything that was even remotely close to what I had written for a column is cited as originally appearing in the Times, because that's a requirement of my contract with the Times. We share copyright in the material that appears first on their site. As a person who worked as an editor for many years, how was it like to be edited yourself? Well, I'm a writer who loves an editor. I have been lucky in my editors almost to a person for my entire writing career. I don't understand people who don't like being edited. To me, it's like trying to do trapeze work without a net if you don't have an editor. When I kept a blog, it unnerved me not to have somebody else's eyes. My husband, who's a high school English teacher and a writer also, he reads almost every single word I write before I send it even to the editor. That's how much I like editing. I want 
help. I want somebody to say, this doesn't make any sense. I can't follow this. I think this is a wordy or I think this is uh, necessarily puzzling or that a metaphor doesn't work. So I'm grateful. My editor at The New York Times, Peter Catapano, he is a brilliant brilliant editor. He is really good at figuring out if I've wandered too far, if I've started out in one place and ended up in another place without enough connective tissue there to get the reader to follow along with me. But he's also an excellent line editor. If it's too long for print, but it's going in print, he's really great at saying, I think you could cut some here. I think you could cut some there. He's he's just Wonderful. And my editor at Milkweed Editions with this book is equally miraculous. By the time we finished the editing process, I'm convinced she knew more about this book than I did. She was such a careful reader and so great at not at making me sound better necessarily, but at making me sound more like what I want to sound like. She like she could channel in some crazy, insightful way what I wanted to say and help me get there if I wasn't happy with where something was. So ironically enough, you have a lovely piece on monarch butterflies, and they feed on milkweed, which is the name of your publisher. There's about actually three pieces in there that are about – I can't remember. We might have taken one of them out. There are at least two. Yes, the caterpillars of the monarch butterfly eat only one thing, milkweed. If there's not enough milkweed, the monarch cannot reproduce. And the fact that the publisher who bought this book was named Milkweed, honestly, it felt almost like a sign from God. And also that strange metaphor that is the life cycle of the monarch butterfly, that it takes several generations to make it down to Mexico and back, that not one will make the entire journey themselves. And then looking at how your parents and you have moved over the years, do you know where the ultimate cycle is that we're going with in compared to the monarchs? It's definitely something I thought about, and we talked about it a lot in trying to come up with a title for the collection. There is an essay in the book called Late Migration, and it was specifically about an incident with monarch butterflies But the book is really about more than just the monarch migration. I think in case listeners don't really know how the monarch migration works, I should explain that it takes four or five generations for the monarch butterfly to get from its Mexican wintering grounds up to North America, often as far north as Canada, and then back Each successive generation goes a little bit farther north and a little bit farther north and a little bit farther north until the so-called Methuselah generation is ready to migrate all the way back to Mexico. So that idea that it takes multiple generations to complete the story really seemed like a good metaphor for this collection of essays about family and nature. And you do start off several generations before you enter the story. The book begins with my grandmother telling the story of my mother's birth. And it's a story I've always loved. My grandmother told it repeatedly. My mother told it repeatedly. Probably 20 years ago, I can't remember the exact year, my brother interviewed my grandmother over the course of a couple of days and made several hours of recordings of her telling various life stories. And when I was first working on on the essays for this book, I found myself going back 
to the transcripts of those interviews often to make sure I got a story right. And then one day it just kind of dawned on me really truly like a light bulb over my head that I should just let my grandmother tell those stories because her voice, I can hear it even though it's still, it's just typed out words on a page. But the story at the beginning, it's already a mixture of generations in that one story because my grandmother who was pregnant and my grandfather had gone to visit my grandmother's parents because my grandmother's parents had peach trees and they were canning peaches. And my grandmother ate so many peaches, she gave herself what she thought was a stomach ache, only it turns out she was in labor. <laughs> and so she actually, my great-grandmother, went into her own bedroom and put clean sheets on the bed, and that's where my grandmother went into labor. But it doesn't even just stop there with my grandmother giving birth in my great-grandmother and grandfather's bed. The other great-grandparents, my grandfather's parents, came over also for this momentous event because my grandfather's father was the country doctor for three counties around there. So this my, is southern Alabama, right? South Al Lower Alabama, as they say in Alabama. And so Papa Doc, the great-grandfather on my grandfather's side, delivered his own granddaughter in her own parents' bed. <laughs> so there was this whole stew of family just like right there in the story of my mother's birth. And then the book goes all the way to when my brother and sister and I drove back to Lower Alabama to bury her ashes in the cemetery in the little community where she was born. I never thought of a post hole digger as an implement for burial before. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently in our family it is. It, it gave me some ideas. <laughs> You talked about how your brother had done those interviews with your grandmother, and your brother also did art for the book. He and did. it's it's fabulous. But in that, in using her exact words in the book, reminds me of how the art is constructed by using kind of a collage method, and that you're taking the work of someone else and weaving it into the work itself. That's one thing my brother is really just brilliant about describing. When you work as a collage artist, you're legally obliged to use materials that are not protected by copyright. So he constructs these works of art using found materials that are discarded, essentially, because they're so old. Frequently, he will, for example, use atlases or scientific textbooks from the 19th century, the early 20th century, where there's no more scientific authority to them, but they can be repurposed for beauty and to communicate a, a different thing. And so it is true that the collage mimics in some ways the idea of putting a narrative together by tiny little stories, and it mimics the kinds of patchwork quilting that my grandmother and great-grandmother were always doing in my childhood and right up through my young adulthood. My grandmother didn't die until I was in my 40s. My great-grandmother lived until I was a junior in college, so I knew them both very well and remember them so well. Also, you have an alternation of contemporary observations of the natural world around your home woven in with your family's history and your personal history. And woven is, is probably too much because it's not a straight one observation, one story. One obs Sometimes there are a few stories in a row. And so it seems more than a woven basket. It's more like a thatch work that a bird would do with their nest. 
That's an interesting observation. I started out alternating very systematically. A family story, a nature story, a family story, a nature story. And I wanted proximity alone in the early versions of working on this book. I wanted the proximity, the stories from the natural world and the stories from my family life to convey the fact that I don't see them as separate at all, that what was happening in the family stories being mimicked by the birds in the yard or by the insects or the flowers. But the farther I got into the family stories, the more those two things blended together, nature and childhood, because I spent my entire childhood outdoors. And so some of the childhood stories more or less function like nature stories. And some of the nature stories are so tied to the cycle of life and death that for me, they came to feel like family stories. Like when you have a family of bluebirds nesting in a box you put up in your yard right outside your window, and you know when each of those eggs was laid, and you know exactly how long the female has been brooding, and you know when the eggs hatched, you also know when those baby birds are going to fledge, and you're invested in the fact that they are about to enter the world, and you're rooting for them, and they feel almost like family members. So the back-and-forth, back-and-forth nature of it became more diffused as the writing went along. A lot of members of the natural world, especially the animal kingdom, do make it into the book, but it seemed birds do have like kind of the, the biggest starring role in your stories. I'm not sure why that is. It might be that so much of what happens in the natural world with other creatures happens underground or it happens after dark. And my experience of nature is not that of someone who is hiking the Appalachian Trail or sailing around the world. I'm just sitting in a home office working and looking out the window. So it's partly just that birds are so visible. And it's partly that birds are, in a way, a perfect metaphor for consciousness, for human consciousness, for human imagination. That's what we are doing with our imagination, with our memories. We are entering the air in a way. Throughout the book, it's that balance between the beauty of nature and the absolute cruelty of how many animals don't make it to a full and happy life and how it ties into the human experience, which we are part of nature. But we pretend we aren't. I mean, we imagine that we are somehow not subject to these same laws. I mean, it's true that we don't move through the world with a sense of predatory activity just out of sight. We aren't waiting for talons to come down and pull us out of our lives and carry us away. But we are actually living just that precariously in the world because we're mortal beings. Your attention goes off the highway for just a second and, you know, everything can change. So, I mean, I think that connection is true, but I don't think very many people want to think about it. But I wanted to think about it. And the reason I wanted to think about it was just that I felt completely overwhelmed by the mortality that we were coping with in our family. My mother had just died when I first started writing these essays. My mother-in-law had just entered hospice care. I lost two friends within six months of each other, both very suddenly from cardiac events. It's just 
every now and then you get a little run in your life where mortality is inescapable. For me, there was a great deal of comfort to take from recognizing that this was just part of the natural cycle. It really wasn't an aberration. It wasn't some terrible thing that was befalling me. It's just what happens. Oftentimes we turn to religion or spirituality to help process these feelings. And throughout the book, your brother has illustrations. They look very reminiscent of old Catholic prayer cards of the saints. They do. They look a lot like old-timey children's books also, like the Arthur Rackham's, the sense of a full-page image with very stylized elements. That's probably not deliberate on Billy's part. I've never asked him. I think it's in large part the result of working with what images he had been able to find to work with. One of the things I love about this book as an object is that when you open it, you are almost cast back in time in a way. There's the feeling of entering a children's book or the feeling of entering the church and those little children's Bibles that they used to have at the end of the pews. That's the feeling I I wanted without even knowing that the visuals could do that far better than my words could do. And our experiences are so personal. Your brother and contributed in this book, and then I'm sure he read the book for inspiration for what to do. But did he share situations with you where y'all had completely different takes on a particular time? I asked him to correct my memory if he remembered it differently than I did. And I checked with our cousin, Shannon, who is Billy's age, a year younger than I am, a year and a half younger than I am. But really, it turns out that Billy was paying attention to a lot of different things from the same time frame than I was. So it's not that he had contrary memories. It's that he had no memories at all much of the time. He says, I don't think about the past as much as you do or as clearly. That's the way he describes it. And I don't think of myself as somebody who spends a lot of time thinking about the past. But for some reason, those stories imprinted on me in a way that they didn't on him. And I think possibly it's because they're word-based. What I remember are the stories that I told myself or that my parents told me or that my grandmother told me or my great-grandmother told me. And Billy was registering images much more so than words. Talking about memory, your mother didn't have memories of an early part of your childhood. And it seems so odd that, you know, so much of this book is based on memory and that she didn't have part of hers. She had extremely clear memories of her own childhood, extremely clear memories of her young adult years. Really, it was the years that she was dating my father and then the early years of mine and Billy's life that she didn't remember that well. And it was because of the electroshock therapy she had for depression during those years. But I think when a child has a mother who's depressed, and I was the oldest child also, I I cannot remember a time when I didn't feel responsible for my brother and my sister. And I think that was probably largely because my mother was so sad Some of my clearest memories are are of her going into her room and closing the door and closing the blinds uh, and the curtains, no matter how hot it was in the house. I've read that when a child has a parent who struggles with mental illness or who struggles with addictions, that child becomes hyper aware of circumstance because, I guess, because... If the weather changes in the household, it will affect her. So I don't know if it's that. I don't know if that's why I remember 
or if it's just, as I said, because these are the one, the things that I cling to are the stories. When mom died and we were cleaning out her house, I wasn't so interested in the furniture or the jewelry. I didn't want any of that stuff as a rule. But I did want the love letters that my grandfather wrote to my grandmother when she was in college. And I did want my grandmother's baptismal gown and those things, the ones that had the stories that I could remember. There are a lot of things you left unsaid in the book that you just kind of point us in a direction and say, okay, it's it's up to you to, to think about the rest of it. And I just had the image of you with a handful of wildflower seeds and just saying, well, let's see where they pop up. That's a lovely image. I would like to think of it that way also. But in leaving those things unsaid, you know, what was your purpose in doing that? People have called this book a memoir and essays. At no point when I was writing it did I think of it that way. I wasn't trying to tell a complete story. I think of a memoir as being like a novel in having an identifiable beginning, middle, and end. And there is a narrative arc to this book, and there is a beginning with my mother's birth and an end with the burying of my mother's ashes five years after she died. But I wasn't trying to tell everything. I was trying to think through... It sounds so arrogant, but I was trying to think through questions of life and death. So everything in the book has something to do with that, with the nature of family love and the persistence of memory. And so if it didn't fit those themes, I just left it out. So I think it's probably less about being deliberately elliptical than about focusing really on one thing. And if it didn't fit that thing, I didn't need it for this book. Maybe I'll need it for the next one. When I was reading the book, and you do have some pieces that are very short, so there's a lot of white space left on the page. And it seemed like there was white space on the page and negative space inside the narrative as well, and that they were working together in in that way. I think so. I think I've tried to explain this, and I don't know that I've come up with the right words. But for me as a reader... I am frustrated and enraged by a writer who tells me too much, and I am also frustrated and enraged by a writer who doesn't tell me enough. I don't want somebody to come to put all the images out there and to put the story out there and then say, this is what this means. That, I feel, is my job as the reader, to discern what it means or to derive a meaning from it. But I also don't like it when... A book is too elliptical, too difficult to get from one place to the next and follow along with it. I ended up giving up on a book just recently. I almost never give up on a book by a writer whose first book I absolutely loved. But I just found the mysteries of the new book. And I don't mean mystery in the sense of a a thriller. I mean mystery in the sense like I couldn't figure out what was going on in this thing. It was frustrating. It was too frustrating to continue with. So what I'm trying to do with these essays is find that perfect size gap, the one that's not so great as to be frustrating and not so small as to be insulting to the reader's intelligence. I'm finding the gap I would find comfortable. It might not be the gap that you would find comfortable or that all readers would find comfortable. So I guess doing the best I can, but that's, that was what I was thinking. In dealing with your life, there are other people's lives who are involved in this. And you actually write about one time you wrote about your mother and she found out about it. I had not intended for it to be a secret. Well, I intended it to be a secret only until Mother's Day. But I was writing an essay about the house 
that my mother was living in at the time I was writing the essay, even though my brother and sister and I had been trying to dislodge her from this house for some time because it was falling down around her since my father's death. And she just would not be budged. And in the process of writing the essay, I was recollecting the scenes from our family life that had unfolded in that house and sort of writing my way around to understanding why she was so reluctant to leave the last house that my father had lived in and the memories that were just shot through that house. And it was going to run in a series in, a, in Ladies Home Journal, the series that they were running about homesteads and, and houses. And it was going to run in the May issue, and so it was going to, I thought, be a great surprise for Mom's Mother's Day present. And, you know, the way monthly magazines do, it came out in April with a May publication date. And I showed it to my brother, and he said, I don't know if you should show that to Mom. It might embarrass her to see how you describe the house as falling down. And so I thought, well, that wouldn't be good if the Mother's Day present ends up making her feel bad. But by the time the magazine actually did hit the newsstands, my mother had been dislodged from the house. She was living in the house, the rental house directly across the street from me. So I didn't say anything to her. Months and months later, she was at the beauty shop, as she called it, sitting under the dryer with her hair rolled up. And she was flipping through a back issue of Ladies Home Journal magazine. She came to a page with basically a full page photo of herself and my father on their wedding day. It must have been surreal to her, but anyway, she took the magazine with several months out of date by then, and she came into my office and she slammed it down on my desk and she said, what is this? And I had to explain that I hadn't meant to keep it a secret from her, but that Billy had thought it might be a mistake to show it to her, and she was fine with it as soon as I explained. I was amazed on how quickly she... She just sort of deflated. All the anger just drained out of her. And I know, by the way, this is not in the book, but I know she liked the essay because after her death, we found a folder on the bookcase that had probably 50 copies of that essay in it. She had taken it up to Kinko's and gotten it reproduced and must have meant to send it to people and just never got as far as putting it in an envelope, mailing them out. What has it been like being on the other side of the interview table? I don't know. It doesn't feel that different, really, to me. When I'm sitting in your chair, it's still a back and forth of deep engagement with a piece of writing. It's just in this particular case, I wrote it. But it doesn't feel really that different. And since you've edited several of my interviews in the past, <laughs> what have I done wrong in this one? You haven't done anything. I never edit it because you did anything wrong. <laughs> I only ever edited it to to make it fit like a newspaper's needs or something like that. The same reason I love being edited. As a writer, you don't know for sure that what you want to say is what's on that page. And having somebody who doesn't know what you want to say can only encounter what you've said can help, I think, clarify what a reader would find troubling, find difficult to follow, and what would be easier to make sense. Now that the book is out and you've left the website, Chapter 16, as you were the founding editor of it, what's next for Margaret Wrinkle? Well, the book's only been out six days, so I'm... That's old in internet time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my friend Ed Tarkington, who's a novelist and who I think you interviewed Mm -hmm. him when Only Love Can Break Your Heart came out, I was saying to him back in the winter, I, I don't know if I can 
how I'm going to be able to do all this. And he said, oh, it's just a lot of activity, a real flurry of activity. And then a month or two later, everybody forgets that you ever wrote a book. <laughs> and I'm honestly, there's a part of me that's looking forward to that stage because I would like to go back to writing. But right now, I still have a weekly deadline with the New York Times and and then I'm still doing interviews and traveling in support of the book and so there's not there's not really time to think about the next step. I mean, I have three ideas for the next book. I like all three of them about equally well. My agent seems to like all three of them about equally well. So I think Maybe after the Southern Festival of Books, after some of the bulk of the traveling is over, I can start to really give some thought to which of those to start working on in earnest. Well, Margaret, we hope we get to talk to you whenever one of these ideas comes to fruition. I hope you'll call me to come back. Thank you so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Margaret Wrinkle is the author of Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss, which is published by Milkweed Editions. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.